You are listening to the Conquering Everest podcast. This is episode 56. Welcome to the Conquering Everest podcast. My name is Brian Talor. Thank you so much for choosing to spend a bit of your day here with me. If you haven't already, please make sure you hit that follow button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. That way you're always notified of new episodes. Please give this episode and all episodes a share. And hey, if you feel so inclined to do so, there is a way that you can donate to this show to help us keep things on the air and moving forward. And all that information will be in the description below. Now, today's episode, I have a conversation with Walker Brandt. Walker has been in the entertainment and advertising industry for over 25 years. She has appeared in international blockbuster films, TV shows, and thousands of advertising campaigns and commercials for global brands. In 2020, Walker became a published author with her book, Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. It's an Amazon number one international bestseller, and Awaken shares a vulnerable, intimate journey of overcoming helplessness and thoughts of suicide as a child from the impact of growing up in a violent and alcoholic family. This is Walker's story. Well, Walker Brandt, welcome to the Conquering Everest podcast. How have you been? I've been good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I look forward to diving into your story. Uh, we've, we had our pre-show conversation a few weeks back and uh you've got a lot of energy and you bring a lot to the uh to the table as far as uh, that energy and story goes so uh, as we get started why don't you take a moment if you don't mind and introduce yourself to our listeners all right well as you said my name is walker brandt i am an actor and a new author as of 2020 um I have been in the entertainment industry for about 30 years. I've uh, shot just about everything and primarily in recent years, dozens and dozens of commercials and literally thousands and thousands of ads over my career. But mainly that's what I focus on is ads and commercials now because it lets me be home with family. Uh, I started my career um, as a model and then it sort of segued into the entertainment industry, not knowing that's where it was gonna go, but it did. And uh, I, uh, I was in a film called City Slickers, and I was on a, you know, several TV shows, but uh, Star Trek, most people love that. Trekkies are the best fans ever. <laughs> so <laughs> I always say Star Trek because I love the fans. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my journey. Uh, we could go in, you know, different aspects of that. I've had incredible experiences and been able to travel the world. Uh, so grateful for that as a result of being in the industry. Um, and, uh, my book that I released last year called Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence is a memoir. It's a story of how my life, uh, started and my journey. And, um, uh, I was, uh, just to give a little bit about it. Uh, most people didn't know until last year when I released it, that I was a runaway and on my own at a very mm -hmm. young age and uh, emancipated at 16 and taking care of myself from that even earlier than that, but, uh, and was able to create this career despite 
the challenges of that and the esteem that I was dealing with and all of the, um, you know, the difficulties of feeling like just an unworthiness of having success that comes with starting a life in that way and, and needing to, you know, to, to make those kinds of choices at such a young age. And uh, I met an amazing, several amazing people, but one in particular named Lisa Nichols, he said, your story doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the person it can help. Mm. And that kind of kicked me in the butt and made me think, I got to get this out. I got to write this. And then COVID happened. And I was like, boy, do I ever need to write this? And I was getting all these little interesting signals. You need to, uh, you need to share more of who you are. You need to not be afraid of people judging you because that's essentially you judging yourself. So I was coming to terms with my own self-judgment, uh, my own self-discrimination, um, and how that was impacting my life um, and showing up in areas where I was just making it much harder to be who I am um, and discovering that, oh my gosh, uh, why am I so nervous being me and so unnervous being in front of the camera in front of hundreds of people or even, you know, seeing myself on TV or whatever. I was totally fine there. <laughs> but it was like, <laughs> put me in a room where I have to just sit and talk to somebody and they asked me about my life. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> it was like, I was so afraid to share it. And I just said, you know what? You've been a courageous person your whole life. You have done things that people have uh, uh, admired you for. Why are you choosing not to gift yourself with this freedom? Why are you shackling yourself here? Why are you uh, making this choice? What is it? And so once I asked that question, once it came to the consciousness of, of I was able to actually see it in front of me, I said, it kind of like inspired that side of me that did leave as a kid to say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't courageous. You got to get out there and do something about it. You got to figure this out. And, uh, and then people, like I said, started showing up in my life. And they were like people that were like, yeah, yeah, they're holding me accountable. You know? <laughs> and so that in a nutshell is kind of who I am and what my journey is right now. And then there's more to share. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's get, let's get into some of that story. The, the story that ultimately led to uh, this book. And uh, well, first of all, before we do, I just want to say that, you know, one of the amazing things about doing this show uh, and, and, and it's my favorite part is every guest that I have on, we, our stories are all different but there's so many, so many connecting points. When you say you you were emancipated at 16, and um, you said you were a runaway, is that yeah? I, so at 16, I wasn't legally emancipated, but I ran off at 16. I started my own life outside of my parents' home, and just things like that. There's always it never ceases to amaze me on how many connecting points there really is between all of us. Um, I believe all of us in this world, uh, when we do share our stories and we get vulnerable. But um, let's go ahead and dive into that a little bit. What was life like for Walker growing up? Oh well, it was. Uh, it was. I grew up in a violent alcoholic family, um, generationally. It uh, it was a, it was extraordinarily challenging. Um, my mother lived through a very difficult childhood. Her mother lived through uh, challenges uh, in her marriage. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, no, she had some, you know, some challenges in her childhood as well. She had good, 
her parents were challenging, but but not as in the same ways. It's like challenges evolve, you know, the dysfunctions evolve. So, and how we receive them in different cultural times as our society evolves becomes a different story, right? Even though it's the same theme, there's threads, like you said, connecting points, but there's a difference in the way it's received because it's a result of the culture that we're living in and the family evolution through it. Each generation brings something new to it, if, if it whether it be a healing or whether it be more suppression. And, um, and that's, so what was going on in my family was continued suppression. And uh, the, the, the violence, emotional violence, physical violence, and the alcoholism made it really hard to be home. It made it really hard to be a student, to be in school, to be around people, to not isolate. Uh, so I was, I was very fragile in the sense that as a kid, I just was a sensitive person. And that, and a vulnerable person. I like, get yeah, all children are vulnerable, but some are more natured, vulnerably natured than than others in um, in their disposition. So for me, I became very isolating, self isolating because it was terrifying for me at home. So I would go leave as much as I could and be out in nature, and that's where I discovered some freedom. That's where I discovered, started to see elements of myself outside of this place that was unsafe to be vulnerable within that I would armor myself like a little armadillo. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, ah, yeah. you know, I don't want to, you know, always protecting myself, but in nature, I felt safe and I felt a love there, a kindness there, an opening there, an acceptance there, a part of something that was so much bigger than me and embracing me as part of it. And that gave me a sense of myself that I did not feel inside my family because of the boxed in suppression that was, that was part of the, you know, part of what my family was living through. And some of it was, you know, my stepdad was a Vietnam vet. He suffered greatly. God rest his soul. He just passed in May of this year. And uh, as a result of that war, he went as a very young man and came back as an extraordinarily damaged man without any support. The support that we give our, our, just to go on that subject for a moment, that we give our servicemen is not, is not good now. Back then during the Vietnam War was, it was criminal in what they lived through and how he came back when he described to me after what he had gone through there and the impact it had on him. And I said, what was it like being discharged when you came home? He said, well, they flew us home in a, and he named the big, you know, the big jets where they carry the, the big armaments, you know, the big ones we see on movies. And they bring you to the base and you pack your gunny sack and they bring you to the bus station. You get a ticket home. There's no decompression. There was no talking about it. Nothing beyond what you experienced with your, you know, your uh, brothers that you talked about, but no decompression. So he had such pain that was just held in, held in, held in. And that was his nature to hold things in anyway. Speaking of a different, the different natures we have, his nature was to contain, was containment. And uh, so it was, and then it's full explosion. So he would be 
very controlled and then very violent. And that was, uh, you know, the very base need for us to feel safe was just non-existent as a kid. So that was what I sought is safety, security. And by the grace of God, I was given it in nature. And that's where I started to determine who I was and started to see myself outside my family as uh, somebody that could have something different. And it, it, it was very unconscious instinct at that time in my life. And then it became a little more conscious as I got older, I realized that I needed to do the work. There was something inside me that said, okay, this doesn't just happen. Life isn't just like it's happening to it. There's a responsibility that you're going to, you're going to, this is going to take some work because you're seeing everybody as a threat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, they're not, this is because of that. And it's because of the first family that you were in was a threat, but that doesn't mean everybody, your whole family, because I feel the same as you, we are one big family and that not everyone is a threat. There is an energy that we share and we can sense when people are at different places and they may not be the safest energy. And we're, that's, we need to listen to that. It's just like in nature, you come across a rattlesnake, don't move quickly. It's going <laughs> to strike, you know? Don't run. Don't, don't run. You know, you see a bear, you know, get big back up. Don't, there are certain things you do in certain kinds of energy and, and being aware of that is so important. And, uh, and it's a responsibility to ourselves to, to, to engage and understand that and connect with that. Like you said, these connections uh, are so broad. Let me, let me ask you a question. So uh, once again, more of your story, I can really resonate with. Um, so for, would you say that you were an insecure child? Did you have lots of insecurities to where, cause, cause as I, I think of it now, you're an actress, you're, you put yourself out there, you modeled, you put yourself out there. What was your, um, how did that, it took me long, a very long time in my life to regain some sense of, um, I guess, courage, because I, I was so insecure from uh, my, my, my childhood and the things that happened. So for you, especially leaving the home at 16, did you know at that point in time that what you wanted to do with your life or were you struggling with identity? Oh, I, I definitely struggling, definitely. So I love that you brought up courage because this was an interesting dynamic for me, discovering my own courage where I was really courageous and where I was frightened and where my insecurities discovering where they were. Because like I was saying before, in nature, I had in immense courage. I would catch rattlesnakes. I'm not kidding you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we be, had this talk because I'm the one yes, that's scared of snakes. So yeah. Yes, and I would, <laughs> catch them. I would catch all manner of snakes. I had, animals weren't afraid of me. I wasn't afraid of them. I knew, they knew I wasn't gonna hurt them. I never had a snake coil at me and want to attack me. I've been in caves with them and napping and found out there was one just not far from me. So I didn't have a, cause I see cool spots. So I didn't have a fear in, in that way where it would, that was where I had really big courage as a kid. I catch big alligator lizards as I was holding them. It was as big as a little kid. My mom would freak out cause I'd bring them home and she would take that thing outside. But uh, yeah, so, so I had this, um, 
understanding that their courage was in me and that I could do things that were, uh, and I was physic, I was very physical as a kid. I climbed trees super, super high. I had no fear of heights, jump and play with the boys. And I was very much a tomboy. And as a girl that developed a lot of strength and courage and self uh, awareness and um, confidence in my being. And so when I entered into the entertainment industry, yeah, it was like, okay, I would call that up, but the insecurities where they, they were with me were about when people wanted to know more about me, that's when it would come up and it was profound. I would just, there were times, and I write about it in the book where some things would trigger me and I would just go into a trance because it was so deep of fear and insecurity in that space, not trusting or knowing if I could manage it. I didn't know what the pressure was coming. I couldn't consciously label what it was, but it was a perception and a feeling that would just come up and an insecurity, an overwhelming insecurity. And I would just back away and I would move the other direction or just tune out and, and disengage. Um, and not know exactly why I was, I'd get, you know, but because it was a trigger that was from a time when I was so young that it created a pattern in there. And uh, going out into nature, I would connect with nature, but I wasn't conscious enough or intellectually capable or emotionally capable to understand what it was that I was hurting so badly from that was causing these fractures of identity and of security and self-understanding. It was that kind of a thing. So yes, I struggled. I struggled with that. I still at times when I'm challenged to up-level myself in a circumstance that's been a life work such as outside in instead of inside out self-validation, something comes up like that. And it's like, oh, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I'm, I'm needing something from the outside to make me feel better about myself. Okay, that's outside in. I'm aware enough to know that I'm that's working on me right now because it's causing this discomfort. It's causing my identity not to feel solid for me, not to feel comfortable in myself. I know enough now that there were periods in my life in my 20s and 30s where I was like, gosh, who am I? And then I reached this point. And being in a business where I could take on roles of other characters and just be there so committed, so comfortably, because it wasn't me, but I would endow them with this, these dimensions deeply. And I loved that, love that craft and that work because it allowed me to be somebody else, not fully having to reveal myself. But there was a point where those two things kept moving together. And I didn't really know it was happening, but I got to the bottleneck. I couldn't get away with that anymore. And my authenticity, I didn't feel authentically myself. I couldn't dive in as deep as I could into the work. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? I don't feel, I feel like an imposter, you know, the imposter syndrome. I feel like I was um, a fraud. I felt like I was, you know, I told one of my acting coaches one time and I just adore, adore him so much. I was in a class and his name was Larry Moss and he's like, he's a brilliant teacher. And I said, I feel like a fraud. And he said, you're not a fraud. Trust me, I know. 
he go, he, you know, just keep doing the work. You're dealing with some deep stuff. Just be prepared, do the work, stay ready, keep evolving. And, you know, it's just a beautiful soul that way. And, uh, and so that's big work. And like Uta Hagen, another brilliant coach says, if you're somebody who really commits to the work of being an actor, you ought to be a really well-adjusted person when you hit your 40s, 50s, if you've been doing it since you were in your 20s, because the work demands it. It demands you get in touch with your identity through the identities of other people that you're developing. If you've got some crap going on in there that's pulling you away from who you are, you're going to have to face it. You're going to have to face it. That's, and it's interesting. So I've always had this, um, I, I've, I've never had a desire to be an actor, but that a lot of that was probably my insecurities. And so I never really gave it a thought because I didn't think I could do it. But one thing that fascinated me was hearing stories about method actors and how they would totally absorb themselves into a character to really get the true essence of that character. But sometimes they walked out of that that moment in time completely changed. I, I remember reading something about Heath Ledger when he was preparing to be the Joker and he just, you know, kind of isolated himself. And, and, and when he came out, he wasn't, um, he wasn't the same guy. And so I've always had this theory in my mind that if you really want to change who you are, become a method actor. But what I'm hearing from you is, the real you is always like that piece of you that, 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 you know, from your childhood, from the traumas, that's going to be lingering around, even though you may put on a, a mask and, and wear, you know, wear a different personality for a while, eventually it, it's, it's, it's going to bubble up and come through and you're going to have to come face to face with it. Like, so I think you just poked holes in my theory that, you know, become a method actor to be anybody you want because you can change your personality, but it doesn't sound like it's quite that easy. It's not quite that easy, but I love that you brought this up and you brought up Heath because he was a beautiful soul and a pinnacle moment for me and my, because I started method and it scared the crap out of me because I would come out. I mean, I loved it. It was like an addiction. This is why it scared me because it was like an addiction for me because I would go so deep into this character that it was, I could get so far away from myself. Yeah. It felt so good. But when I came out of that role, it took me longer and longer to shed it because I was running from myself. And I felt that I, that wasn't gonna work. And I felt that if I kept doing this, that there was a hollowing happening. There was a, a, a void and it wasn't, there was an instinctual thing. Walker, I literally had this conversation and when Heath Ledger passed, I knew why, because of that, that work, because of being a method actor, because of the characters. And it's interesting you bring those, there are no mistakes, such synchronicity. I was just having this conversation yesterday because life is a visualization in many, many ways. It is a dream. We start with an idea, a dream, something we want to do. It's, you could liken it to a dream or a visualization or a thought that you start seeing, and then you start moving toward it. You start taking actions. And if you were to 
see where you are right now and then go backwards, how'd you get there? You will see all these moments that you visualized that you took steps toward it. And it was a, that's very much, and there, there were intentions and you moved through conflict and you kept superseding conflict. And this is the superseding of the conflict is what kept you interested and kept you moving forward and kept you intentional. This is craft. And so as an actor, when you do that, you are essentially, and the mind not knowing the difference of the imagination and reality, you can blur those lines to a great deal. So when you're creating and working through a character as dark as a Joker was for him, and if you have issues of any kind that you have not worked through, anything from your childhood, anything from your young adulthood, anything that you're judging yourself for, anything that you're feeling insecure about, anything that you haven't gone inside out from, and you're in that world with that pressure from all the people representing you, your fans, the business asking of you, and you don't have that inside out foundation, you're gonna to turn to drugs, you're gonna to turn to alcohol, you're going to fall into that big giant space, that canyon. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll be at the bottom and you'll scratch yourself to the top. It's emotional for me because I know so many actors that suffered this. We know so many actors that have left this world because of this because they couldn't, because of the pressure, because not wanting, because the kind of judgment I understand that I can relate to, not wanting to share your story, not wanting to come, because everybody's seeing you as this thing. And it becomes a world of, they see me as this, I can't go against it. I can't tell them that I'm falling apart inside. I can't tell them that I can't shed this character. I can't tell them that I, you know, that this has become too hard for me because then I'm gonna, somebody's gonna step in and take my place. There's just so much pressure that a, uh, an actor of his talent and his level, just like Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, this level of, of genius that people have and the connection they have to, and they, and they want, and they, they want to be challenged into their darkness because this is what we're in this binary, beautiful experience of light and dark and being challenged by it is the conflict of life. It's the keeping us here. It's wanting us to evolve and go through it. That, draws us here and it's a beautiful thing and it's a terrifying thing and the the beautiful part of the industry that i wish was more responsible at times is being able to mimic life and share stories that are so special and so deep that give us a look into the life of people so that we can see ourselves in there and let that judgment go and grow through who these people are in their just authentic, who they are people like, you know, Kate Winslet and Mayor of uh, East, East Work, or I can't remember the name, but sorry, apologize for that, but it's a series she did. It's on HBO, I believe. And, you know, she just plays a character that's just so raw and real and relatable and mistakes. And she's making all these mistakes right and left. And, and then she makes these amazing, powerful choices. And isn't that what we are? Isn't that what we are? And we spend so much time racking our identity and, and telling ourselves we need to be this and we need to be that. And it's just okay to be as fragile as we are in those moments, as strong as we are, as raw as we are, as great and beautiful and genius as we are. 
and just be okay with that in those moments. Give ourselves the time we need to take a break and be okay with who we are and not receive all that pressure. That's a hard thing to do in your 20s and 30s. And uh, we lose people sometimes in your 40s too and sometimes for life. And, uh, did, did you find yourself um, coming from a home that, <clears throat> that did struggle with addiction? Um, alcohol was there drug addiction as well or was it so I mean coming from that environment of overdosing yes it, oh yeah so at 16 when you found yourself independent and on your own um, did the allure of alcohol and drugs creep into your life or were you able to stay um a couple steps ahead of that. And I guess what I mean by that is, so um, alcoholism does come from my family. Drug abuse does come from my family, but I never turned to drugs and alcohol. My vice, my addiction was attention. And, but it, it was, it was funny because I, growing up, I was super introverted and shy, but I always looked for one person that I could latch on to for a period of time and they would fill me up with whatever it was I was searching for, I, I guess, love. And, and then eventually that would fade. And then I would go and jump into the next relationship looking for it. So my, I became addicted to the relationship. And I think in some ways I still am. But for you, what was, what was that like for you um, coming out of that and still having starting your life, becoming successful, but still dealing with the trauma? Well, to, to share just a little bit on the drug addiction, I had big drug problems when I was really young. I started using cocaine and alcohol at 13, 14. And then when I left 15, um, I was, every chance I got, I was using something. My parents went around, I was sneaking alcohol. It was, I was numbing myself during those years to, to just be in the environment whenever I could. And I would sneak out and I would go drink with friends and uh, weekends and, you know, I, yeah. So I used a lot then. Once I left home, I was on my own. I had to work, I had to su survive. I had to feed myself. I had, I did not have that. I knew you, you can't do this. You, you can't do this. You, there's no, there's no hiding. You gotta, you know, I couldn't go to work drunk. I had, I mean, that just wasn't in my core system to do that. I felt like, okay, I got to do my best wherever I go to work. So I had this built-in ethic, but I was, I did become like a weekend binger for a period of time. I did. And exactly the same thing as you have with relationships, 100% did the same exact thing. I found myself in relationships that were feeding something, the attention. I, I imagine that's why I accepted being an actor as well, because I didn't think about doing it. But once I got the atten attention um, and, you know, and as a model, um, you know, even though I found the modeling part of it profoundly boring, and I was always creating characters for my modeling. <laughs> my, my agent was like, I'm just going to nickname you the chameleon, because you just like, not one picture looks the same. And she's like, why is that? You're just like, I was like, because I get bored, and I just start thinking about different, you know, people and things, and I, and so when she got the call about City Slickers, and she was like, oh, I know who's going to be the actor, because they wanted, they wanted a model, 
um, and and they wanted a real model. And she was like, oh, I have a model that's really an actress. <laughs> I'm going to send her. So, but in my 20s, well, all throughout my life up until my 40s, my relationships were very much that. Um, it was this the, finding love always, wanting, you know, wanting to, love was my priority. I wanted to know love. And so, and then the attention thing that I was getting from being an actor and a, and, a, and a model, not so much as the model, but as the actor, that's when I recognized when I was ta talking about that, that, that cavern, that canyon that was being built between myself and, and the work I was doing, my, the, char the characters and not being able to shed them. I also recognized that this attention, this attention is very addicting and I am wounded. And, and then I started looking into the history of actors, you know, and I started seeing the statistics and I started seeing people reading uh, memoirs and histories, you know, biographies about people like Marilyn Monroe and people that were so wounded and became really famous and or other people that were wounded and, and became famous or somewhat famous and didn't deal with their issues. And they just ended up being so damaged or ended up in institutions or on drugs and alcohol. And everybody in my family, all my siblings had turned to drugs and alcohol. I was the only one that didn't as an adult. And so, but the, but for the weekend, but even for the weekend, I can only, I can count only three times in my life where I blacked out because I was so afraid of losing control. So afraid of being like my family, so afraid of what could happen if I lost control, who would I be um, that I just didn't want to. So that's how I managed it. And then as I, you know, I just, I went through periods where I didn't touch alcohol. I went through sobriety periods. I went to Al-Anon, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to um, all different manner of, of treatments and, and meetings and uh, education to uh, therapy, Jungian, um, uh, and all different kinds of modalities to peel back and figure out how that, that addiction couldn't like sneak in and draw me to something, but I could be more conscious with it. Um, so yes, I understand that. But I, in relationships, that's what took the longest for me to recognize because we're supposed to be in relationships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love is a good thing, you know, and it is. But the way that you receive it when you haven't received it authentically and in, in that loving parent way is it becomes the ideal reflection, the ideal that you set, that I did, that I set as what love is. And that drew a specific type of relationship to me over and over again. Until, and with each one, I don't know if you went through this, but with each one, I recognized more about who I was, what my core values were, because what always inevitably pulled me out of the relationships was an incompatibility on core values. I didn't really know my core values were consciously, I was always reacting to them, but I couldn't consciously articulate or emotionally define them because as a kid, my core values didn't mix with my family. They were, had to be suppressed to just be in that environment. You know, so maybe you can relate to that too, is you were different. And so you had to leave, but then it became the discovery that normally happens when we're children in a safe environment at home, the discovery of identity. By the time we leave home, our identity is closer much than it was for you and I intact. 
But for me, it was like leaving at five when I left it, you know, 14 the first time, 13 the first time, 14 the second time, 15 permanently. Um, so I was way behind schedule. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I can, I can totally relate to that. And it, you know, and throughout my life, it's, it, and it does come, or at least for me, it, is, it comes down to those values as well, because I would find myself jumping into a relationship because I felt that love that I was craving. But of course, every relationship kind of has its honeymoon phase. And then eventually you, the, you, you both just get real with who you are. And then once that happens, it starts, it gets a little more difficult to accept something, a, a value that you, that you don't believe in or that you don't live by. And, so yeah, it, like as you were talking, I'm just like, yeah, that's that's I can define it to a T. So, um, well, let's talk about the book. So the the book is 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 a, um, only about a year old now. You said 2020 is when you wrote it, and if I if I remember right, at the beginning of our conversation, it it, it you decided to write it because people were telling you that hey, this needs to be out there. Uh, when you started writing this book, where were you? at emotionally in your life? Were, were you in a really good place? Were you still trying to overcome the past? Had you already passed that? Like, where were you when you started taking your first, um, you know, strokes of the keyboard to write the book? I was in a really uncomfortable combination of all of the above. I was at a <laughs> point where, okay, I know this, and I know I don't know that. And I know I need to know, but I don't know what that is. And I've got to just open myself up. And I had a breakdown. I had a, a full-on breakdown. Um, I had been walking through a seven at that point, almost, well, no, it was six-year uh, cancer battle with my with the love of my life. And, uh, and hardly anyone knew. And it was excruciating and uh, to keep that hidden, um, but, but it was out of respect and the wishes of, of my, my soulmate. And so it was, you know, he's my love. And so, you know, it was out of respect. It's what he wanted and it's exactly what he got because I'm, that's the way it is. So when somebody's dealing with something like that, my belief is as hard as it was, and it was, really hard because I don't do I don't suppress in that way um it went against everything inside of me I knew it was harming myself uh but it was also a, a silver lining harm because it forced me to acknowledge that, that I was and that there was stuff still down there that I hadn't really dealt with and losing the potential of losing him brought back a very deep memory when I lost my grandmother who I had bonded with as a baby. And uh, she was beaten to death by my grandfather when I was three. And it was the most devastating experience that I have ever lived through up until losing my best friend in my twenties unexpectedly. And then what I was walking through with my partner in life. And, um, There was the awareness that there is something in my body. As much as I may know up here and I may be aware, 
there's something that's hiding in there and it's causing me so much pain. And I, I got to a point where I just didn't want to be here. I was in excruciating pain. I was like, how can I be in this space where I, I, I have some understanding? I, I have some awareness. I've done work. I've created success. I've come a long way, honey. <laughs> <laughs> how am I sitting here on the floor and feeling like just, I can't do this. This is this life thing. It's just, wow, it's just really knocking me out. I can't do this. Is how I felt. I just, gosh, I don't know if I can walk this because I couldn't define it. I didn't know it was just in my body because it was, I was only three. And some of the worst trauma I had seen was prior to three with my grandfather beating my grandmother. And I lived through this and I watched this. And so I just contained it. But I didn't know the memories were in there, but they, they didn't surface. When she did die as a child, I cried year after year after year. It was like, a, I just, it went on for years. My mom didn't have any room for it. She didn't have any space for that kind of pain because she had her own. And it was like a reflection she could not deal with. So I would get, you know, hit for it. I would get punished for it. And so that created even more suppression. So it wasn't ever a place that could come up in me. Well, it came up in me. It was like a water bottle that had been held under deep. And I put this in the book because it's such a visual that came up in my mind that, you know, filled with air, a gallon water bottle that had been pushed down, you know, 100, 200 feet underwater and then just released. And it just went up like a flipping rocket and it shattered me. And that's why it was so overwhelming. I just didn't, I, I didn't want to, you know, like I said, I was, it was the first time I felt that I didn't want to be here because pain was so great. The fear was so great. And, uh, and then I got through it. I just was on my knees begging and begging and thank God for my, my husband. He, he just was able to be still with me and recognizing that there was nothing he could say I had to just go through it. And, and the feelings that he had at that time were so difficult for him because he was in pain and knowing that he was contributing to this because he was had cancer. And he was like, my gosh, you know, how, you know, how am I, you know, I can't help my, my, my wife is suffering because of me. And I was like, no, no, I don't want him to think that way. I didn't want him to add to his pain, but it, it happened when it did. And so it was that kind of experience of, um, you know, this is part of what this book is about. This is part of what this is. This is allowing myself to be this raw, this real, this, this, you know, and I know that's a term people use, but this is, this is what it is. It's like a wound. It's like, you know, peeling back the, the onion of who we are. Like we all talk about when we do work, you know, peeling back the onion, but inside of that, is this heart that has been, you know, bruised, that has been singed in some ways, and it's healed, and it's protected itself for fear of not having it happen again, but you don't get to live in that protection anymore, to be in the world that you want, to be in the world of connected, to be in the world of vulnerability and acceptance and uh, knowing that we're all a family this way, you, your heart needs to be open 
So you don't, you, you can't do this anymore. You can't be in that space. No matter what it is, you got to let it out of your body. And that's what I kept telling myself, whatever this is, whatever this is. And so I just invited it and I just made it, I went through that bottleneck that of, uh, of living through that subtitle of my book, discovering yourself through the light of your innocence is I gave myself the light of my innocence. I, I rested in it and I chose to see everyone that had ever done any harm to me, everyone that had ever done any harm to anyone that I love in that light, including my grandfather. I had no idea that there was this place in me that had so much terror around him that I couldn't, that I was hiding it, it was trapped. And uh, so that's where I was when I had the breakdown. And then I, after the breakdown, I was surrounded by two friends, Kathleen Seeley, I was at a seminar with her and Jack Canfield and, um, and my friend, Heather. And she, my friend Heather saw me fall apart after you know, it was like the third day, which sometimes happens in these things. You bring yourselves mm -hmm. into those environments and um, you draw them to you because you're ready. And uh, she called Kathleen and Kathleen came up and she just is such a gifted spirit. That woman is a just a gift to this, to this, we all are. She just was my gift in that moment. She was my angel with my friend and they gave me, they held me in their space they let me walk through it. They just were exactly, I was where I was meant to be with who I was meant to be with. And um, they just escorted me through the bottleneck. And then I went home and I started writing it down. I, I took what I had and I just, it was like being in a download. I'd never sat so much in my life. Like you said, I have a lot of energy. I have a ton of energy for me to sit down for eight months. It was so difficult. And so I, I, but I couldn't move. I would just like, I was up at night. I was up at three in the morning. It just come through me. I'd be out of bed. I'd be writing. It was just like letting it out and writing and writing. And, um, and yeah, so that's where I was. And then at the end of it, it was COVID happened. And I kept getting this thing, like you said, this feeling the year before that we're all this family, we're all connected. And I had this vision that we can no longer, and I had this amazing connection that's also in the book at the beginning where a friend of mine reached out to me that I hadn't seen in 20 years on Facebook. And we started talking and I shared with him this vision I had when we were talking in 2019. And I said, I don't think we're all going to be able to gather together in places, in groups anymore, unconscious the way we are as in this world, like we're not connected to each other. I just think we're all connected and we, we have to know this about each other so that we can stop this this living apart from one another and we can stop labeling each other you know third world and from that you know those those don't exist we're a family of human beings and then COVID happened and my book was in my final edits with my editor and I was like I need to get this done because I needed <laughs> everybody saying don't release it now don't release it now it's COVID nobody's going to read it and I was like I need to release it because it's all about the unknown and I just feel like I have to and so I released it earlier than expected and didn't listen to anyone telling me to postpone it and release it in March of 2020 um and yeah because I, I I had written it in 2019 and it was just in that that process so yeah that's what I hope I answered your question yeah yeah I would, I would think COVID would be the perfect time to release your book because, uh, you know, nobody can really, especially in 20, uh, well, when it, when it really hit the thick of it, nobody could go anywhere then. Ah, yeah. Nice. But, I, 
yeah, but believe me, me, lots of people I know, and they're big authors, and they've sold, they've made a lot of books. All their editors are saying, "Wait till September. Wait till November." Yeah, it's weird. So, yeah. so life for you now. Do you feel like you've gotten some? You you were able to heal some of those remaining wounds through your book and what you've been doing since then. Like, do you do you feel? complete or do you think there's still more to to like another book in the process or you know in, in the mind or what's oh, definitely on? another book in mind for sure um but you know I, I i don't necessarily feel like i'm complete i feel like i have gone to a different level in my experiences that i invited this and what i'm doing now i mean the people that have come into my life and the collaborations as a result of this the um, have been, I, I now co-teach with an amazing woman named uh, Helise Framasparky Bridges. She started a um, company called Blue Ribbons Worldwide and she downloaded the Who I Am Makes a Difference Blue Ribbon. Did I show you this during our talk? I don't I, think so. I may not have. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to share this experience with me right now. Okay. So I have a ribbon in my hand. It says, Who I Am Makes a Difference. And I would like to honor you with this ribbon. Brian, because of who you are, just who you are as you are, the way you see the world, courage you have to share the way you see the world, how vulnerable you are, and how that brings it out in others, the way you see connection in all of us is so, it's inviting, and it's comforting, it is a moment to share that isn't always there and it's something we all need and I am just I want to honor you for that and what if I were sitting with you right now in front of you I would ask you if I could place this above your heart facing up may I do that virtually for you sure. yeah so I am placing it above your heart facing up and on the end of this ribbon are cheerleaders and the reason it's facing up is because it's facing up to your highest dreams and the sound that makes dreams come true and the tradition is for me to take a spark from my heart and put it into this end of these cheerleaders and say, bing, <laughs> and ignite through sound that spark in my heart that connects it to yours. And so this, this woman and I started collaborating in April of 2020. And now we teach a course called Standing Strong Together. It's a community building leadership training certification program online. She had been teaching a version of it uh, in person on a three-day, you know, in person. So we, we rewrote it together for the virtual environment. And now we're going into our third session, September 8th. And it's, what's so special about it is it's multi-generational. We have kids in there that are 10 and she's 79. And she has more energy than me, if you can imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. And um, it's just incredible. We're starting Blue Ribbon Cities. Uh, Carlsbad was just proclaimed the first Blue Ribbon City. The second is going to be Moose Lake, Minnesota. And the third is Denver, Colorado. These are all launching the next month. And uh, the goal in Carlsbad is there is a student that just graduated, Hannah Katz, who's also a graduate of Standing Strong Together with her brother and her mom. And it's a really incredible story. Her mom met Sparky 
30 years ago as a 12 year old when she was in school and Sparky was doing, Grandma Sparky was doing, she was Sparky then, now she's Grandma Sparky. She was doing uh, assemblies in the eighties in schools with that ribbon, teaching kids to end bullying, suicide, and learning how to love and respect one another. She would call kids up and say, if you've been a bully, I want you to come up here and I want you to say you're sorry. If you've been bullied, I want you to come up here and talk about it and share it. If you've been hurt by something, I want you to get up here and share it with you. I want you, let's heal this together. Let's be together. She was doing it when it was not a popular thing, when it took a lot of courage and she got a lot of rejection. Now the time has come, everybody's ready for this and more than they've ever been because kids are a lot more emotionally aware and ready and schools have finally realized you can't expect a kid to learn academics when they're emotionally suffering. They need to know they matter. They need to know they're cared for. They need to know that somebody wants their voice. And that's what we do is we value that more than anything is that all of us have a voice and that there really isn't an age that separates us. There is no, you're a kid, you don't know nothing. You're an adult, you're too old. There is this beautiful environment that we are in in these courses and the, the experience is just incredible. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what I'm doing now is I'm teaching that. Yes, we are talking about co-writing several books but also our own books that we're writing. And uh, yeah, there's more, there's more coming. It's a whole new, it's a whole new deal. <laughs> you, um... You you came the closest of all my my guests to almost almost get me to shed a tear. I fight that back on time to time. <laughs> uh, I should just let it go, but I, I appreciate that 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 was um, you know I, yeah I appreciate it. I, I got goosebumps and I don't really have words to describe it, but I, I, I thank you for that. I love um, that. And I've got, uh, I, I know I've captured or I've got some links from you that we're going to include in, in the descriptions and all that, but um, just just for the sake of um, kind of voicing them out there, if somebody wants to follow you, connect with you, you know, see the work that you're doing, where would you like those folks to go? Well, they can go to my website, Walker. Uh, walkerbrandt.com. They can email me at walker at walkerbrandt.com. All my social links are on my website. I'm primarily on Instagram. I think most of us are at this point. It's so funny. I have Facebook, you know, Walker Brandt Official. Uh, and then I have Walker Key Brandt um, is, my, um, is my Instagram. Uh, I'm, I've got a Twitter, LinkedIn. So I'm all over. You just Google Walker Brandt. You'll see them all. And um, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to connect and I'd love to hear from, uh, from your audience if they'd like to, you know, say anything about this interview or, or chat about anything. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And I've got to go and I've got to rent um, City Slickers. That's one of my favorite movies. And now I got to go find you in it because it's been a while since I've watched it. So now I'm like, hmm, she was in City Slickers. So I'm and big go giant hair. You. you won't miss me. Okay. I have hair. <laughs> Bruno Kirby's wife, yes. All right. I'm going to have to <laughs> go back and, and why I haven't seen it in a long time, and that was one of my favorites. So I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to share your story with me and, and everybody that's listening, everybody that will listen. Um, you, you, you are an inspiration to me. I would, I would gladly um, pay you any amount of money just to sit and take uh, coaching from you uh, every day because you, you just, there's so much much packed into what you have to say and, oh, and 
Thank you so much, Brian. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Really, such a great a moment in time to share with you today. And I, I just, I'm just giddy inside. Thank you. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, I'm going to look forward to. Uh, I'd like to have you on the show again sometime down the road. So I will keep in touch, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of follow your journey and see what what's next and uh, have you back on and share it if you don't mind. Sounds good. I'd love that. If you are enjoying the content being created on the Conquering Everest podcast, please consider a donation. Your donation will help this podcast continue to grow and reach more listeners. Thank you for your support. And as always, aim high, be courageous, and you will do amazing things.